Hey, Nitan Mosri here, the Traveling Investor, and welcome to another live Q&A show of the Traveling Investor Show. I'm Nitan Mosri, your host. And let's not forget or always remember to say hello to Master Yoda. And Master Yoda, we know what he says. Do or do not, there is no try, because when you try, you're leaving the door open for failure and for excuses. When you do something, you'll either do it and you'll either have success or you'll have failure. Either one is okay, and either one you learn from. You probably learn more from failure than you do from success, but that's okay. Failure is a good thing. And, you know, recently I was just traveling out in the mountains of Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina and near the border of Tennessee as well. And we were, we were talking about failure you know we were traveling we were having fun and you know what happens if you know you you fall what happens if you don't succeed what happens you know what what's with this failure thing right we sat and i was talking with one of my friends around the the fire one night and it was just he and i and we were talking about buddha we were talking about uh osho and uh you know being enlightened through different ways right so buddha went through suffering osho says you don't have to go through suffering you can go and become enlightened through happiness and attachments and you know what what you know the the whole goal is not to get attached to the outcomes but to enjoy the ride and we uh, the conversation continued and moved in different directions and we started talking about failure and i said and i'd mentioned in our conversation, I said, think about it. When we are born, everything that we do comes from failure, right? Uh, we try to put our thumb in our mouth and we miss and we poke our eye out and we cry as babies, right? Then we poke our foreheads and then we poke our, our other eye and cheeks until we, oh, until we succeed. Failure. Uh, we try to stand. Hundreds and hundreds of times, or even before standing, we try to roll over and we don't, it doesn't work. We fail. We go out to the side, don't make it, come back, try a little harder until we roll over. And then we got to roll back onto our stomachs. And that takes time and failure. And, you know, through failure, we achieve our success. As children, that's how we grow, that's how we learn. We, we start to crawl backwards as babies, we don't crawl forward. Right. We try to eat and take the spoon and throw it in our face and on the floor. And, you know, we make a mess. That's us learning through failure. Everything that we do from the ages of eight, nine or even younger than that. Right. Walking and jumping and breathing and talking and eating and pooping in the toilet and all that stuff. We learn from failing. We learn from massive failure. Standing up as a little infant, right? You want to stand up, boom, you fall on your ass again. Boom, you stand up, you fall over. You can't, you want to take a step. You take a step, you're holding on to something. You fall over. You. It's all about failure. We learn to run. We learn to walk. We learn to think. We, everything that we do, touch with our fingers, it's all done through failing. And I used to say, well, you know what? We're taught about failure in school. Because teachers, you know, we come, we do a test and they mark it off and whatnot. But I've been looking at my kids and, and the school that they go to and, and whatnot in different grades. You know, it's not necessarily failure. It's not necessarily taught by the school. I had a aha moment sitting by the fire drinking my, my, my 
my whiskey. Bourbon. The failure that we as people, or or the the idea that failure is no good, bad is that is, is is evil, comes from us, the parents. Right? I'm probably going to piss a lot of people off when I say this, but it does come from us. It comes from the parents, because when our children grow up and they become young kids four, five, six years old, and they make a mistake, and they fail. Parents get angry. They grab their kids, walk faster. Come on, don't do that. Don't do this. And they start yelling at the kids. Or it doesn't even have to go by as yelling, but we start reprimanding our children, right? And as they get older, if they didn't do something correctly, then they get yelled at. They get reprimanded. They get, the, And we put it under this, this, this ruse of, oh, well, you know, it's consequences. And in life, you know, when you do something and it, you don't succeed, you're going to have consequences and you got to understand consequences and whatnot. But what we're teaching our children at that point is what you did, that mistake that you made, that failure was not okay. We don't sit with our children and say, listen, you know, when I asked you to do something and you did it like this, thank you for doing that, first of all. But let's talk about it. It didn't actually work out the way we wanted. We want to go in a different route. We wanted to do this. Show them what success looks like rather than reprimanding them when they make a mistake. If they make a mistake, it's okay. Believe me. We're all humans. We all understand that making mistakes suck. We don't want to make mistakes. We learn from our mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes. But when you're a parent and we're reprimanding our children, there's no point in that. All it does is it makes the child feel bad, makes the parent feel bad. Negative energies arise from it. So why not understand, okay, somebody made a mistake. My child made a mistake. Someone made a mistake. They themselves already feel bad for making the mistake, even a teenager. They feel bad for making the mistake. They may not show it, but they feel bad. There's no point in going and pushing it further. Rather, take the child and go, hey, you know what? You screwed up, right? We all know that. It's okay. What did we learn from it? Where did we go from here? How can this not happen again in the future? And learn from it. Now, of course, they're teenagers. They're kids. It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. But this is where breathing comes into play. This is where we learn to breathe. This is why breathing as a parent is so important because our kids can sit on that last nerve and ride it like a dentist drilling into that God-forsaken cavity that you have and just drilling in that tooth and they can just get on you, that noise and everything. At that point, we as parents have to become like Buddha. We have to become very Zen. We have to go into our mode and, oh, please, I'm I'm the first one to admit that it doesn't always work the way I want it to work. It doesn't always happen the way we want it to. But at least our intention is there. Our intention to stay calm, to breathe, to understand that the child, the person in front of us, understands that they made a, that they made a mistake, that they feel bad. But let's revert back to little babies. When a child fell on its ass, we didn't reprimand it. Hey, you should stand up. You should learn how to walk. Come on, what's wrong with you? What's going on? We take them and we cuddle them and we show them that it's okay. Let's do it again. And this is how I think we need to we we need to act with our children and with people in this world. 
Obviously, it's easier said than done. We've been programmed to act in certain ways and to do certain things. Television programs us, radio programs us, internet programs us. But one, but the one thing that we have to learn is that we are all human beings and we all make mistakes. And this is how we learn. We learn from our mistakes. We learn from error. We learn from failure. So don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to go out and to take a risk. Make sure it's a calculated risk. Make sure that you do your homework first before you take that risk so that you can minimize the liability of that risk. But it's okay to fail. I fail all the time. I failed probably today 10 times. I wanted to make a, a, a video to uh, talk about the guests that we were supposed to have on the show today. And uh, it took me 15 tries. But every every time I did it, I got better and better and better and better until that last clip was the best. And boom, I did it. And I felt awesome doing it. Now, imagine if I would have done one video and it sucked and I would have sent it out. Well, then people know that this is how I do things, a shitty way. And if I would have taken that and said, you know what, I'm not going to show it. It sucks. I'm not going to do anymore. Oh, I, I sucked. I, you know, why does it always happen to me? Why can't I make it work? Why, why is it always like this? And I just go into that mode or I go down that rabbit hole. So don't go down that rabbit hole. Understand, wow, that was a failure. What didn't I do right? Okay, I had the camera this way, the text I didn't read correctly. Maybe the sun was shining in my face. All right, let me adjust. Boom, do it again. Ah, I said that word, no good. Okay, come on, focus. Drink a little water, redo it. Oh, the light, the, the, whatever it is, right? We keep adjusting. And in life, that's how we have to handle it. We have to keep adjusting. We have to keep moving from waypoint to waypoint, right? Adjusting for the current of life and what bring and what it brings to us. So don't get caught up on the failure. Get caught up on failing fast, failing big, and failing forward so that you can achieve your success that much quicker. And the reason why I'm talking about this today is because, you know, I was supposed to have this awesome guest on the show who's been featured on HGTV and doing all these great things and so forth. And they confirmed several times. They confirmed before the show. He never showed up. He's not here. Don't know what happened. It happens. There's no one to blame. There's nothing to sit there and go, oh, you know, blah, 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 and point fingers. Hey, hey, shit happens, right? Question is, how do we roll with it? I could have said, well, you know what? We're not going to do a show today because my guests didn't appear. And what am I going to talk about? And it's going to be live and people are going to come and see. They want to see the show. They want to see my guests and so forth. I rolled with it. I said, let's do it anyway, right? Let's talk about the things that don't happen that should happen. Let's talk about failure. Let's talk about these things because this is really a big part of our lives. So parents, future parents, children, understand failing is awesome. You know how many times I failed in my life and I looked back and, you know, when I was younger and when I did fail, 
I took it so hard. I took it so personally. I would run myself down to the ground. I'm a failure. I suck. I'm the worst. Why do I do this? Look at my brothers. They're so much better than me. They're blah, blah. Oh, yeah, they're 15 years older than me. They had, they had a 15-year head, head start. Now, as I'm older, I look at failure and I say, okay, what can I learn from it? Let me make sure I never do that again in my personal life, in my spiritual life, in my business life, my health, everything. So look at your failures. Be proud of them. Wear them on your sleeves. Wear them on your, on your shoulders as, as something of pride. Because if you never fail, that means that you've never taken a risk. And if you've never taken a risk, you don't know what success is. Because to be successful in anything, you have to take a risk. If you want to be successful in love, you got to risk being hurt. You got to risk being vulnerable and being open to another human being without knowing what that person is going to do with that information that you're sharing with them. Taking risk in business, mitigating that risk, mitigating your liability, moving forward, jumping off the cliff, and then building the plane so that you can be successful. That is risk. If you've never done that, you don't know what it is to be alive and exhilarated and to not be able to sleep because you've got things running in the in, in the pipeline and you've got things going on and you got some stresses and some fears and some excitement it's all there take that risk understand that there will be failure there will be obstacles there will be challenges there will be things that will challenge you to your core that will make you want to turn around and run how are you going to react to it how are you going to act in the face of that? When your business plan went to shit, when you bought a property and then there's a pandemic going on and then nobody pays their rent and you've got to deal with it. And now you, you got mortgage, you got tens of thousands of dollars of mortgages coming due every month, but the tenants aren't paying. How are you going to handle yourself? How are you going to move through it? Breathing helps. There's a ton of breathing techniques. You can go on YouTube. You can check out breathing techniques. The kind that I love are the kind that make me focus on the here and now and the present where you focus on your breath on the tip of your nose, going in and going out. That's active breathing, right? Passive breathing is what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. We don't think of it and we just breathe, right? Imagine if we had to think about breathing, we'd all be dead after the first couple of days of life. So, that passive breathing, that's what we do on a daily basis. It's the active breathing. It's where you can sit and you can actually pay attention to the breath. The breath going in. What happens once you stop breathing in? Pay attention. And then breathing out. And at that moment when your last breath comes out of your nose, pay attention to that sensation. The Buddhists have that. The Buddhists came up with this uh, with this way of breathing, with this technique, right? And this is what I spent 10 days in India doing vipassana meditation, silent meditation. No talking, no looking at people, no reading, writing, no drinking coffee, no smoking cigarettes, no listening to radios, nothing. Total, complete, here and now in the moment. You wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, you go to bed at 8 o'clock in the evening, and that entire time, save for a few walking meditation breaks and lunch, 
you're meditating, you're focusing on the breath, on the sensations of your entire body. It's an incredible experience that everybody should do. Everybody. I don't care if you believe it in or not. It will change you. The point of this meditation, the point of this technique, forget meditation, it's just a breathing technique. The point of it is to be able to expand the space between the thoughts. Because, And how do you do that? By focusing on your breath. Because you'll learn that as soon as you breathe in and you stop and you breathe out, in that millisecond of time between breaths, there is no thought. There is no thought. It's not that you're not thinking. There is no thought. It is a complete empty space, vacuum. Entire universe exists in that space of a millisecond. If you can take that space and you can practice your breath and you can practice focusing, you can expand that space between your thoughts. And your universe will expand. And in that time and in that space of no thought, of no thingness, of nothingness, of emptiness, it's not even emptiness because emptiness is something. In this space where, there, where no thought exists, you can then implant any thought, belief, behavior, request that you want from the universe and from yourself. And this is how you can go about calming yourself being in the moment because when somebody cuts you off when your tenants aren't paying and you've got mortgages to pay when your children are, are yanking at you when everybody's coming at you in 72 from 72 different directions by doing these breathing technique you are able to stay focused and centered in yourself so that you're not reactive to the world but you can come to the world and act in a way that you will be able to respond to the world by acting rather than being reactive. Because what is being reactive? Reactive is somebody smacks you in the head, you go, hey, what are you doing? Right? You start reacting, blah, blah, blah. To be to respond through an active perspective is when somebody comes at you when when the government says, "Hey, we don't have we're not tenants don't have to pay rent anymore, but landlords you have to pay your mortgages." So rather than being reactive and freaking out, you're able to take a breath, calm the mind, calm the thoughts, and now move forward towards a solution where you're connected to yourself and you're connected to the universe and you're open so that you can receive answers to the challenges that are in front of you that are in this world now that are real. This is not some esoteric, oh, blah, 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 spiritual, good thing. Yeah, it comes from there, but let's take that and let's put it into our real world that we live in now in this place you can change your reality but we're focusing on now where we are
So when your children, when people come at you and they make mistakes and they fail in front of you, the government fails you, your friends fail you, your children are failing, everybody's making mistakes, you're making mistakes. Rather than being reactive and riding that roller coaster of emotions up and down, up and down on a daily basis, you can now focus yourself with this breathing technique. And you can come to the world and respond to it from a place of calm, openness, and a place of solutions rather than a place of, oh my God, I'm so stressed, I don't know what to do. Because this place will not give you the right answers. This place will take you down another rabbit hole. Okay? All right, well, it looks like our guest was not able to make it today, so I want to leave you with that. I want to leave you with, don't worry about failing. It's okay to fail as long as we learn from it. Oh, here we are. <laughs> I was just yeah, about to. This is a miracle, I was, man. I was just about to say uh, goodbye to everyone and, and have a good week. And then you popped on. Look at that. It just works. How are you, Ward? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Well, I'm sorry. Sorry, I thought it was a Google Meet from the original uh, uh, invitation, so I didn't see that I needed to download uh, Chrome, I guess, is what I got downloaded. I got you. I got you. Okay. Well, well, listen, travelers, let me, let me share with you who we have on the show here today. Uh, Ward Schrader. Ward Schrader, you've appeared on HGTV uh, Bargain Mansions with your daughter, Tamara, and you guys renovated. You're a... You're a, a jack of all trades, as they call you, right? But I think you're a master of all trades after what I've read and what I've seen, right? A jack of all trades is just doesn't, doesn't call it well. Uh, you've been featured in Reader's Digest, Fox 4, Architectural Digest, NBC News, and just to name a few. Uh, you're a guy who started out as just fixing things. Built your business, went out and, and you know, started working and... and Next thing you know, you're you're working on rockets. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am doing that. That's a really exciting uh, venture for me. I, Absolutely. Uh, I certainly didn't start off with a uh, plan in life to do all the things I've done. I, I'm not sure how you would have ever written that uh, that desire mm -hmm. or, or objective, maybe a better word. But um, you know, I. I I, I guess I grew up not being too afraid of things and, and uh, trying new things was always something interesting. And, and so whenever an, an opportunity uh, jumped up in front of me, I was willing to grab on and take it for the ride. And, and it served me very well over the years. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and you know, it, it's funny you say that because I was just talking to, to the listeners out there about failure, about how it's okay to fail, how we've, oh. We failed as children, and that's how we got to where we are today. Everything that we did as babies, as infants, is about failing, standing up, poking ourselves in the face, you know, trying to talk, trying to run, trying to do everything. It was all about failure. And here you are saying, you know what? I'm looking at new opportunities. I'm, I'm, I'm checking new things out. How did you limit, mitigate failure, 
risk and all that and all the ventures that you took place and then we're going to talk about those different ventures as well so the listeners can can understand but how did you how did you put that fear of failure of going into new things aside and jumping into them well so actually i'm not a gambler in the sense of the word uh like going to vegas and and putting money on the table and throwing the the dice because I, I know when I go there that the odds are stock, stacked against me. So mm-hmm. it's just a mathematical game to me. I, I have, I do my homework. I, I look at all the options, at least that I can uh, imagine that could happen. I put the math to them, the positives, the negatives. And, uh, and I come up with an answer that says the odds are stacked in my favor. And, and when I've done that, uh, it, it's been quite successful. That's fantastic. Yeah, so I guess you just got to look, you got you to gotta wave the, the benefits for the risk and see what kind of talents and skill sets you've got and, you know, building a team around you, would you say, to help you succeed? Oh, my gosh. There's no way that I could have done half the things I've done if I had to do them all by myself. There are so many talented people I've surrounded myself with, um, both doctors and nurses and scientists and, and rocket crafters and and engineers and 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 then even some really creative and and uh, or, or many really creative and intelligent people in the construction industry that come up with fabulous ideas about how to accomplish getting one thing done or another. Um, I I'm a I'm a big advocate of the trades. I I think those guys are are underrated for what they provide and what they can do. But real estate. Um, I, I've been in that almost all my life in one way, shape, or, or another. Uh, and, and in fact, the very first project I did, I it was a, uh, a bankruptcy that was a uh, medical office building. And I looked at it, did my analysis, identified that it could be modified in the way I needed it to be modified, and uh, literally went to the owners and uh, and it was distressed. They'd had it on the market for a year. Uh, couldn't get an offer. Went to them and offered them a ridiculously low price. They said no way. And I said, "Well, here's here's the here's the deal. I'll give you. I I, I can't give you what you want, um, but you sign a contract with me that if I get a lease, who I was trying to lease uh, to the federal government for the IRS, and I said if I get the lease, I'll buy the building from you, but at this price." They came back a couple of weeks later and said, okay, we'll take it because we don't have anybody else and we got to get rid of it. <laughs> and, uh, and I still didn't actually own it then. So I took that contract and I went to the IRS and this is how I mitigated the risk on that one. I went to the IRS. I said, here's my deal. I have a contract to buy the building. It's a legal document. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you give me the lease on that building, I own that building by, uh, by my obligation. And sure as heck, they went along with that, and the IRS gave me a lease, and I ended up buying the building two weeks later, and uh, and spent the next six months physically in there by myself with Tamara at times. With my, I have four children, so whenever they weren't in school or working or doing something else, this is how we got started. I, I put them to work pulling out carpet, tearing down sheetrock, helping me put up walls. It's, it's actually quite funny. I, I didn't really think the children were learning very much when they were doing that because there was sure a lot of complaining going on. <laughs> uh, but, uh, it turned out all four of them went out on their own afterwards after they graduated from school or whatever. 
and they bought they all bought old houses or something along that line that needed repaired and they started doing it and i'm like wow i'm i'm shocked and i was so happy to help them i i jumped in and drove three hours from where i was living at the time and and worked many many weekends from friday afternoon till monday morning and it all worked out really well that's amazing that's, that's amazing. fantastic yeah. yeah, that's uh, having your kids. It's, uh, you know, I, I grew up that way as well. My dad put me in, you know, to change the toilets and to clean the toilets and to go on the uh, water towers in the summer times and retar them from the inside and take care of them. So, yeah, it, 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 you know, and of course I was bitching and complaining the whole time, right? I want to hang out with my friends and I don't want to be doing this. But yeah, it taught me, it taught me about properties it taught me about renovations you know when i'm looking at someone now doing a job a, a skilled person doing a job i understand what they're doing because i kind of did it on my own as well so it, it's very helpful to get that kind of education right it's, Absolutely. it's a real world there's nothing that can replace learning how to work hard and and also having a good advocate or mentor as your father was to you uh, as I hope I've been to my children. Uh, in fact, all of my children have turned out to be way more successful than I was at their age. They, they, uh, it seems to me like I didn't really kind of start hitting my stride until I was in my 40s, early 40s. And, mm -hmm. and actually, that was when I finally had made the decision and went home and told my wife, I, I, don't, I don't care if I have to dig ditches, but I'm going to work for myself. And uh, quit my corporate job and, mm -hmm. and uh, went out and and uh, found actually found another bankruptcy uh, and took it over and turned it around. Fortunately, that worked. It could have been a whole different picture if that, that first one hadn't worked so well. Right. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I look at my, my history with multifamily. Uh, the first multifamily I did was a 27-unit property that on the day my money went non-refundable, we realized that the subsidies that the property was getting were going to disappear. And this was never told to us. So we're going to buy a property now that we thought had X amount of income, but on the day of closing, it's going to go to zero. Wow. We, you know, and thank God we were able to uh, work it with the sellers and, and, and whatnot and the agricultural department who gave the subsidy. We got it back on and so forth. And you know, we were able to flip it to another investor and make about $70,000. And if that would have went sideways, probably wouldn't be talking to you today. <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny how how life takes twists and turns, and you never know what what uh, how things are going to turn out. Seemingly bad sometimes, and they turn out okay. Other times, you think they're okay, and they turn out bad. But your your first, I think, your original question was um, about failure. Mm -hmm. uh, so, not to jump ahead, but I mean that was certainly the way I got started was by buying businesses that failed, and. Uh, well, I, it wasn't possible to turn or succeed with every one of them. Mm -hmm. I, I think all in all, I bought 35 different businesses that were in some form of bankruptcy. Everything from a, I had a almost 3,000 herd dairy at one time. I had a, mm -hmm. a food distribution business, a paperback printing, um, engine remanufacturing, whatever. And, and probably two out of every three of those that that I uh, that I took over, I just had to liquidate because they were too far gone. They mm -hmm. they had been neglected or um, 
or sometimes it was just a bad business. It, it was really not it, trucking. With, I had three different trucking companies and, and I found it real quick that hauling commodities is a really tough business. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and the margin is just so short. Why would you want to do it? And so I liquidated all that probably several hundred trucks and tractors and trailers and whatever, but Wow. So how would how would you go about finding these uh, these businesses that were in trouble? What, was there a, did you follow a system? Uh, you know what? How did you go about looking? And what were some of the parameters that you were looking at for these businesses that that kind of said yes, that's it for me. That's the one I want. Uh, the very first after I did a few of them, the very first priority I started looking for was if it had enough zeros behind the whatever numbers were up front. If we took over some uh, small businesses that were uh, a, a printing company, for example, uh, was one of them. So it was just a copycat kind of printing company. Uh, I don't think that was the name of it. But anyway, it was just a small storefront and they did about a million dollars in business. Well, I'd also taken over a $35 million food distribution business about the same time and found out that it was no, it wasn't a bit harder to do $35 million turnaround than it was to do a million dollar. I still had to spend as much time studying the numbers and dealing with banks yeah. and, and owners and whoever else. So number one criteria, is there enough there to make it work? And, mm -hmm. and if there's enough zeros, then an awful lot of times you can find a way to manipulate uh, the, the numbers, meaning, uh, you know, get more, raise your prices maybe is one of them. Right. Reduce the economies cost. of scale, economies of yeah. scale. All of that. And, and so um, after a while, it, it, it became quite easy to figure that out because the, the reality is that businesses all have the same needs, meaning every business has accounts receivable. If you don't take care of your accounts receivable, you're just asking for trouble. Mm -hmm. If you don't balance your checkbook, you're asking for trouble. If you don't pay your taxes, more trouble, more and more trouble there. And then and plenty of that, people start going broke and they quit paying their payroll taxes or sales tax or whatever they owe. But inventory turns was another one, depending on the business. I had, I had a business that turned its inventory 56 times a year. Wow. I also had a business that turned four times a year. So which one is more, more important? Uh, neither one, really. It's just that that industry need that needed to turn its inventory. It was food, and and food spoils. And if you don't turn it fast, uh, you have problems. The other was an industrial gas and welding supply distributor, and we turned four times a year. Our profit margin was uh, on the industrial gases was five hundred percent. Our profit margin on the food was seven percent. But I turned it fifty six times a year, so it was three hundred eighty percent. On my first dollar mm -hmm. uh, for that year, so the but you turned, you know, whatever uh, the overall welding and industrial gas distribution was probably industrial gases were several hundred percent, but then the whole overall percentage was probably thirty-five to forty percent, and you only turned it four times. The food distribution actually made more money turn in less, less or more dollars, but at a lower margin, mm -hmm. as long as you didn't lose much. Right. And that's why you had to control your inventory. We, we 
we ran our inventory as close as you could possibly do it. So businesses have all the same needs. It doesn't, there is very little that's special about any industry. Maybe, maybe when you're in a rocket business, the technology is pretty important, but once that's figured out, right. um, it's, it's still inventory, receivables, payables, balance the checkbook and, and know where you're at. <laughs> it's all about yeah. the cash flow, right? <laughs> it is all about the cash flow. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. So that, I didn't mean to drag that out so far. No, no, absolutely. No, this is fantastic. And, and, you know, so, and that kind of walks hand in hand with your philosophy, right? Find something that's broken, fix it, and then turn it into a success, right? That's kind of your philosophy behind doing what you do and how you do things, right? Well, it is. I, I don't know that I ever had a quote unquote novel idea or new idea or thought of something that somebody hadn't thought of before. I, I doubt very much that I did because most things in today's world have been thought of. Uh, mm -hmm. But what I did was really manage those ideas maybe better than the last guy did. And, and I, and I really loved taking things that are broke. It, it's, I, it's funny, but I, I still go into my garage or my workshop and fix little trinkets of things that are broken. It would cost me five ninety nine to go buy a new one, but <laughs> there's some pleasure in making it work right. and figuring it out. And, um, uh, I like that. And I, and I think I've, fortunately, I think I taught my children that. I have also been blessed to be surrounded by really talented people, as I said earlier. And some of them have really wanted to take my example and learn from me. And, and they have allowed me to mentor them. And, and they are turning into really fabulous entrepreneurs on their own. And I'm really proud of that as much as I am of anything else. That's fantastic. You know, that's, that's kind of what entrepreneurs it's, it's what we do right we you know like you said there's not much that hasn't been created that hasn't been talked about that hasn't been invented yet but we find things that you know problems challenges you know i was I, I had a guest on the show that he has a company that finds social problems and then creates companies to fix those problems interesting right so it's all about finding a solution to a problem, right? And, and as an entrepreneurs, that's what we do. It's kind of what, you know, the multifamily real estate game or even the real estate game that, that you were playing, you know, that you're playing now is, you know, finding a house that's debilitated, that's run down, finding a business that's broken, bringing life back into it. What value can we add to it? How can we bring it back to life? Where do the, and where can we see it going? And taking pride in that journey as well. Couldn't agree more. Um, going back to that building that was the medical office building I first started with, uh, I became friends with the doctors uh, that uh, were uh, that were involved in it, the ownership of it, and and literally over cocktails, uh, we decided to build a surgical hospital, and that's how I got into the medical industry. <laughs> Again. Great. What, what a crazy that's been. I'm, I'm into my 37th hospital or surgery center now. And wow. um, as an owner, operator, developer, and um, yeah, just, you know, we found something. The, in, the healthcare industry was, was really broke. And this was 25, almost 30 years ago. 
and and people were trying to figure out how to make it less expensive just as they are today and uh, and that's how surgery centers came along and surgical hospitals is that it was broke and it, it mm -hmm. needed fixed it needed a better way i guess that's uh that's a good philosophy to pass on to newbie entrepreneurs people that want to go out and do something for themselves but are kind of trying to figure out where do i go where do i start right find something well, that's exactly. broken and try to fix it you you probably have bought lots of buildings that were in some form of distress maybe they had just had deferred maintenance on them for too long mm -hmm. and so you got so what a bargain that is i got into housing i always wanted to be in in housing and and rental housing but I never wanted to own one and have it in rental housing. I, I wanted to have enough that I could have a maintenance man that, that took care of them and a rental agent that took care of them. Mm -hmm. And so one of my career paths was uh, I invested with, I don't remember, I'll say 20 different individuals and we started a bank. And, uh, and so that was a great, I was really interested in that because I wanted the education in banking. I never could quite understand why banks would or wouldn't loan me money on some projects and frustrated me. So I was really happy to be able to get in with some friends and, and uh, operate this bank and serve on the board of directors. And, and one of the customers that we had had, I th I'll say 56, I think that's close to the right number of homes. And he just came in one day and he said, I've been affected. He didn't say this, but this is what he'd been doing. He'd been living off of deferred maintenance on them for about 10 years and they were all falling apart. And he said, here's all the keys. I'm defaulting on all the loans. And we're like, what the heck? <laughs> oh, wow. And so the banks, by law, can't keep properties like that. And so we started as a bank putting money into them to fix it up so that they, so they were still rentable, but they were mm -hmm. rented to very poor quality renters. Right. And, and that's something as a piece of advice for anyone listening, don't rent to poor quality renters. That's that's a really good way to go broke. Uh, so have better quality in my mind, have better quality product that people want to rent. And so we started putting roofs on them, rebuilding them, repainting them, fixing kitchens up, making them the upper end of the size home that we were renting. So there were thousand, 800 to 1,000 square foot, two bedrooms. And uh, we just made them in that market better than right. probably most others. And, um, year and a half into it the bank had to get rid of them and we nobody could buy them there was too many of them and i just walked in one day and i said you know, you're trying to sell these at a discount we've got them the bank had them to the point where they were cash flowing i said i'll buy them i, I mean, this is a no-brainer you got 56 homes um you need x amount of money down i'll put it down well, as it turned out, they said, well, let's let's go to the other board members and ask them if they want in and the other investors. And so ended up 20 of us bought all six, all 56 of them. <laughs> I, I regretted that. I should have had a should have had a blind buyer go in by that. I mean, somebody they didn't right. know and and buy them because they've never done anything but make money. We make a 12 percent a cash on cash return every year and and That's and equity. That's so, fantastic. The equity is a beautiful thing because it's deferred income. I don't have to pay taxes on it. And mm -hmm. shh, I don't, don't tell the IRS I'm doing that. I, I don't think you can get into trouble for that, but you never know. Right.
Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's thinking out of the box or it's actually it's taking the box and, and throwing it away and coming up with solutions. What can we do? Right. What can we do to this property? What can we do with this project? And like you did with the with the IRS building, right? That was that was some seriously creative and ballsy moves that you made. And sometimes in entrepreneurship, you got to make ballsy moves, right? So that you can get the best opportunity, but also so that you know you shake some people up and go, wow, this this guy's you know is a mover shaker, right? He's, he's doing things. It really, you asked me a question I don't think I answered was how did I find bankruptcy? I didn't, after I did that one and a couple more, I didn't have to find him anymore. The banks started finding me. Mm -hmm. So maybe in a regional basis, it wasn't like national and I wasn't doing hundred million dollar companies. I, I did do 50 million, uh, mm -hmm. that was as big as I did. But um, no, once they found somebody that had some history, had some understanding of the legalities of bankruptcies and and liquidation and what the bank was facing and what the what could be could be not what was. Um, I started getting calls from banks saying, "Hey, we'll give you the business if you'll just pay the debt off." Mm -hmm. And literally, I I know I said I'd buy them, but most of the time I say that because people can't believe me. But all thirty five bankruptcies I did were given to me free. Wow. Okay. Share your story on that one. <laughs> how do you, how do you get, how do you get that many bankruptcies given to you for free? <laughs> uh, because the, the banks, uh, so they've let the business go too far and they have, you know, pick a number, $5 million in debt. And uh, if they close the business completely, they, lose $5 million. Now, mm -hmm. maybe they'll sell some of the assets off and get something, but you know what computers are worth used. I mean, you could spend $150,000 on it, but you get two. And, mm -hmm. and inventory gets old real fast and trucks sitting around aren't worth much and et cetera, et cetera. So they have a big motivation to get somebody in there that'll try to turn the business around. So there's also a law, or and I presume it's still in effect, although I haven't done a bankruptcy in 10 years. Uh, it's called uh, preferential treatment. And the preferential treatment means that you, a bank can repossess a business and run it, say, for a year. But in the, or no, let's back it up. Say that they want to run it for 90 days and liquidate it, and then just take all the cash from receivables and, and so forth. And maybe it would be enough to cover their debt, mm -hmm. um, but they can't do that. By preferential treatment means that the bank would be considered giving themselves preference over all of the other creditors. And so in the first 90 days, the bank has to split every dollar that comes in after the foreclosure. Uh, with all the, with the other secured creditors. Well, obviously, they're the biggest creditor. Usually, they don't want to do that. They're protecting themselves, and uh, understandably. And so they would hire me and give me a free 90-day look. Hmm. And so I would go into the business. Uh, first day, I'd, I'd, as kind of a side note, the first thing I'd do, the first very first hour that I was there was identify what the break-even number was. So in trucking, it was how many miles did you drive last year and how much money did you spend? I don't care what you spend it on, just give me the total. It's a simple division problem that takes about five minutes if you've got any kind of data at all. And, and, then, I, and then I asked, well, what did you charge per mile that you drove? 
And if they if they were charging a dollar, but their total over co overall costs were a dollar ten, the next day I raised the prices to a dollar fifteen. <laughs> it wasn't that hard. You right. just had to had to do it. Uh, I mean, and and so the banks would come to me back to the how I got them for nothing. Uh, would come to me and say, "We're going to give you a free ninety day look. At the end of ninety days, we expect you to either take it over." You, you're not asked to, I, I was never asked to guarantee the debt. I was just given the opportunity to have the free look and make a decision at 90 days, whether I wanted to take it over and try to make it a go and pay off the debt and, mm -hmm. and make a profit or whether I wanted to liquidate it for him. And at the end of 90 days, I could liquidate it for him and they ended up getting more money than they would have any other way. Wow. So, that's fantastic. So that, that's how after a while, you know, the, the banks, after I had some successes and it, it's kind of like mm -hmm. you and, and my first success, if I hadn't had those first two or three successes, probably, probably nobody, nobody would have called me again, <laughs> but right. I did. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and I really loved it. I, I, it was really a lot of fun doing bankruptcy because, uh, you were in, even though earlier I said, there's really no differences there, there are differences in philosophy. There's differences in, strategy and uh, I mean, selling food versus selling engines is a whole different world. Oh, of course. It was great fun learning about each one of them. It was mm -hmm. great fun. The employees that stuck around never, I, I believe I can say this in the businesses that succeeded, that they never had a more enjoyable job in their life. And most of them would tell you that, that they knew every day when they went home, that there was a lot of work. I, I always had every employee working in maybe 120% of their capacity. And, and the reason you do that is if you let them work at 70%, they go home complaining that, that this crummy job, whatever. You work them 120%. I know they don't get 120% done every day, but they strive for it. That it's the goal that I set, right. and they strive mm -hmm. for it. They go home every day knowing they're needed, and they come back to work happy because they're needed. And it's it's a it's no magic formula. It's just a magic philosophy. It is so much fun to be with people that are succeeding and winning. It's the most fun. That first two or three years of running a business like that it's sad that it has to end when you get it really successful and it's standing on its own because as you get bigger and bigger and you lose that ability to keep everyone that busy, things start getting some degree of unhappiness. It's, mm -hmm. it's not total. You can still maintain a two degree degree, but it's the most fun you'll ever have. I agree. I agree. It's fantastic bringing something back to life, making watching people enjoy their their work and what they do um, is fantastic. You know, we have several property managers that uh, that, you know, I also have a property management company. So we have property managers and then, you know, I, I push them. You know, this is, you know, I give them timelines. I say, you know what, we have X amount of vacancies. You have 45 days to fill them. And this is the uh, rent that we want to see. And this is what we want to look. And, you know, not even that, but I also confer with them and I say, okay, what are your thoughts? Right. Uh, I want to do X, Y, and Z. Do you see us well, doing it? Can, can you accomplish it? What more can you accomplish? 
couldn't agree more. That's in, in, in every business, I set up a, a, a manager roundtable. And every Friday, we had a meeting limited to less than an hour. And every department head came in and explained his problems, her problems. And as we, at first, everybody was like, oh, I'm not going to say anything. You know, gosh, somebody will say something about me. And, I, and so I start have to ask, you know, oh, so the old trick is open. Ask open-ended questions until you can get a closed-ended question. Like, is this right or is this wrong? That's kind of a closed question. But what do you think needs to be done is an open question. And when I, you know, so you work the people until you start demanding answers. And once they start giving answers, and nobody jumps down their throat like you're like like they were idiots and like mm -hmm. what the heck are you letting that go on for? But you build it into a proposition where everybody's a teammate and we're all working together. And if there's a bottleneck here, what can we do to solve it? Um, that, that business round table was, was, a, I don't know who invented it. I don't even know where I came up with it, but it's a, it's, it works fabulous. But you personally as the leader better come in with a smile on every morning. Uh, you better, you better come in with the attitude that we're changing things to make them better. We're not changing things just to make your life more difficult. Uh, if you do that, I think you can succeed. And, Absolutely. and it didn't work for me. That's great. I was going to ask, I was going to wanted to talk about success principles, but I think in this little short conversation here, you've, you've managed to share with us many of your success principles that have made you, you know, who you are today. So um, I, I want to quickly, we have a little bit more time left. You know, obviously everybody wants to hear and wants to know HGTV, right? How did that happen? How did that come to happen, right? Um, you know, every, people love the show. It's fantastic. I enjoy it. So how did that come about? Well, Bargain Mansions came out. Uh, it, it, it all kind of is a big puzzle that came together. It's the kids working for me when they were young, learning how to do houses. Tamara, uh, wanted a nicer home. She had four children and really couldn't quite afford it at that point in life. And so she found in, um, I, I, 08, I guess, I'm not sure exactly what year, but in that, in the debacle anyway, a almost 6,000 square foot, five bedroom home, uh, that had been foreclosed and just trashed by the previous owner doors mm. kicked in sheetrock pulled off cabinetry pulled down, you name it, they did it. Left dogs in there for a couple of weeks, and uh, she bought it and called me up and said, "I'm doing it." And I'm like, "Holy crap! You know, this, this is a big job." Here. And uh, and she did it, and uh, I'm really proud of her for doing it and supervising, and, and really proud of her husband for going along with it because because he's working a full-time job and she's she's staying home watching the kids and she's managing the construction and she learned a, a lot i mean some mistakes were made but she learned sure. a lot sure and what impressive maybe the most impressive thing was that she wasn't afraid to try what a what a huge uh, we talked about a little bit about that earlier i can't tell you how many young people i've had employed by me that i have encouraged to go out in business and and of their own do a business of their own they're, they're better at what they do than in, in that particular business than I was. Mm -hmm. I, it, it drove me nuts that I couldn't get them to take that step. That mm. 
They wouldn't reach out. Like they've got something to lose. That's the thing I guess I never could figure out. You're 25 or 30 years old. You don't have anything if you started yeah, like I did. What what have you got to lose? Maybe $20,000 or $50,000 or whatever. But it's and you're young enough. So I've kind of divided life. I, I did this early on. I've kind of divided life into segments. And at 20, I got nothing to lose. At, mm -hmm. at, at 30, I got a few pennies or shekels or whatever you want to call it. And at, at 40, I better start making some better decisions if I haven't succeeded by then. But I still have time. Right. At, right. at 50, you're really pushing the envelope. If you haven't succeeded at that time, maybe you ought to get the best job you can and start putting away for your retirement and say, I've never been a person that couldn't plan. That my, my father used to laugh at me because he, I can't remember the words he used, but they were German. He was, he was German. And it was, it was like, I have the uh, organization disease. That's what he called it. And I, I've just never been able to live my life without thinking that I'd have some money set aside for a rainy day. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, that's how I segmented life a little bit. And I, and I just drove me crazy that I just thought so highly of some of these young people and I couldn't get them to take that step. And the saddest part to me is that they'll end up working for somebody. They'll have a good job. They'll make a good living, um, but they'll work till they're 65 and wonder why at right. the end you right. know, or that they don't have more. I was always, um, when I worked, I started off working for Union Carbide uh, for nine years and then in a small distributorship to learn how to run a small business. And the whole time I was working for them, I can't say it was weekly, but frequently, I would sit down and calculate how much money I had to save so I could retire. When I left at about 41 to go on my own, I don't think that I have ever done that calculation again. And the reason is, is that, first of all, I've made more money than I could have ever made working for somebody else. I've built more equity than I ever could have done working for somebody else. I, I have more freedom. Oh my gosh, I have all the freedom in the world. I can go anywhere I want, do anything I want, live wherever I want, and it doesn't make any difference to my business anymore because it's really more private equity investments than it is actually getting down and hammering nails. Mm -hmm. uh, although I do have to do that on, on the show from time to time. It's uh, so I've kind of wandered. You asked me about the show and here I am talking about all these other things. Great. But anyway, the show, she, they saw her, uh, our producer from California came back to Kansas city to help his parents retire. And, um, he heard about Tamara and contacted her and said, Hey, we'd like to do a sizzle reel. And this is the short version. There's a whole lot more to it, but, um, and, and she calls me and tells me, and I'm like, yeah, you know, that's just one of those modeling things. They want, they're going to take pictures and then you're going to have to, they're going to want 5,000 or something like that. No, I don't think so that I've asked them. And they said, they don't care about any money. And I'm like, okay. So I was coming through on business and I stopped in and, and they said, oh, Tamara and I were talking. They said, well, why don't you just sit back here on this fallen tree in the backyard and you and Tamara just talk a little. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. And so Tamara and I start talking and I 
teased her a little bit and and, uh, and they sent that off to New York and, and New York says, hey, we want them both. And I, I, I really, it's not joking, but it is kind of a joke that I'm, I'm really kind of Tamara's uh, Kramer to her Seinfeld. In that <laughs> I, I'm a character, you know, as far as the show goes, I'm the dad and I, right. and I don't need to be on a lot, but our audience really loves that Tamara and I have a great relationship and we do. We, mm -hmm. there's nothing scripted on the show. That is all banter that is just Tamara and I just talking. Um, and it's I, the, the reports we get through Instagram and Facebook and, and whatever social media is that they just love the, real, the father daughter doing something together. And so that's what New York evidently saw. And a um, year later, we did a, a little better a, a, a pilot. And another year later, they said, we want to do eight shows. So real quick, they had 2,500 pitches that year. Oh, wow. They, they broke it down to 200 and said, if you, at your expense, you send us a three-minute sizzle reel, we'll at least promise to watch it. Uh, out of that 212 of them, I believe is the number, were given X amount of dollars to do a pilot. Out of the pilots, uh, two shows were given a, a season of eight shows, I think it was. And we were one of those two. And the next year, we were the only one that the other show was canceled. And we wow. were, we survived. So you think about it, to get on TV and, and have a successful show, we kind of won the lottery, if you will. So that's kind of the story in, in a nutshell. That's a great story. A great story. Yeah, it, it, it's been interesting. So the part I love about it is I, I, I've got to learn another business. I've got to right. learn something right. that I never anticipated. I guarantee you, I didn't spend my years as a starving artist waiting on tables to try to get a break. I, that, <laughs> we, in fact, it's kind of funny. We've had people call, text us or email or, or social media and say, could you give me some tips? I've been going to acting school and uh, for years and I've been inter interviewing or auditioning for shows. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it just happened. So you got to be at the right place uh, at the right time. I guess so. So right. I, my, but I would say this, I, I don't believe in luck. Never have. Um, there may be a right place at the right time, but if you aren't willing to grab it and take a hold and go for a mm -hmm. ride, it's it's what's the difference? You, mm -hmm. Not much luck involved. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one last topic before we go. Okay, December two thousand nineteen. You started playing with rockets and jets and all that kind of stuff. Tell us more. So uh, that business is called Rocket Crafters. Uh, it is now doing business as Via Space, V-A-Y-A. Um, we are, oh, so it, it, it came from the healthcare industry. As a, a developer of hospitals, I, I had big loans. Sometimes uh, the hospitals would cost 80 to $100 million to develop. And the, there were three general packages, and I went all over the country trying to get loans because no bank wanted to loan all the money for one project. They wanted to spread it out. So I have dealt with probably 150 banks easily, I think. I, I, I don't even think I'd be stretching it if I said 200 and from small to large. 
And um, Sid Gutierrez, who is a was a NASA employee, uh, actually a shuttle commander and a captain of a shuttle. So he's been in space twice. Um, left NASA, went to work at Sandia National Labs in New Mexico as a uh, as an executive. Identified a new rocket technology. Uh, he the reason one of the reasons he left NASA was that safety was not uh, inherent in the in the devices they were building. He was on a safety commission that that, that didn't uh, get implemented, and so he quit NASA and went to Sandia. All his time there, he was looking for a rocket engine. So the, the so today's world uh, in rockets, the shell, the nose cone, the navigation, and all that stuff is pretty much off the shelf as compared to the first Apollo. They were mm -hmm. still modifying the antiquated computer software to the minute it took off because uh, they just weren't that confident in it. And, and it, 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 it didn't deserve that much confidence, evidently. Um, so he found this, in, this new technology, went to one of the bankers that I had dealt with. And of course, the banker said, as you would know, that, well, you don't have a business, you have an idea, you have no revenue, you have no employees, you, have, you, you got a really nice idea. We, as a bank, we can't loan you money and, and you don't have a hundred million dollar bank account either. And so the banker said, though, I know a guy that has done some unusual things, maybe you ought to talk to him. So they put us on, that banker put us on the phone together. That banker actually did a, a wonderful thing in that he, uh, he got on the plane with the guy, with Sid and flew out here to Kansas City. And we had about a three hour meeting so I didn't tell you my degree originally at a college was chemistry with a background in physics and math. Oh, wow. And, and when they uh, came to me, the chemistry is so simple. It's plastic and printed. And the engine is completely printed on a 3D printer uh, in a very unique and, and patentable way. Uh, it's ABS plastic. You know what ABS is. It's plumbing mm -hmm. pipe. Sure. But it's printed on a 3D printer. Most plumbing pipe is, is, pipe is extruded, uh, to my knowledge, anyway. And um, so they print it in a very unique way that allows it to burn from top to bottom consistently. And plastic is hydrocarbons. Oil uh, is how it, what it's made from. And so when you heat up plastic, it puts off all these hydrocarbon gases that are flammable. And when you mix those with an oxidizer, you create a flame that is, that is incredibly powerful. And uh, so he came to me with this concept. I said, I, I, I'll drink the Kool-Aid. I, I understand this business, and, or I think I did. And, uh, and so I, uh, I had my private equity firm put up, uh, not just firm, we have partners in that. And we put up enough money to prove the concept. And we have now proven the concept. The engine has test fired not quite 60 times successfully. Uh, we use nitrous oxide as the oxidizer, which is uh, a chemical formula, NO3, breaks down into lots of free oxygen under mm -hmm. heat as its, as its catalyst. And between the free oxygen and the, uh, and the uh, hydrocarbons coming off of the plastic, it, it it burns amazingly. Uh, we launched our first rocket in May, I believe it was, and um, 
it was the engine was a was a screaming success according to the films that we have a high-speed camera at the site to give you an idea of how powerful it is uh it was going somewhere between the scientists will probably tell me i'm crazy but or that i did it, said this quite wrong or a little wrong but five to seven mock five to mock seven in less than two seconds so it it uh it took off like a bottle rocket you you couldn't hardly even see it as it as it launched um, oh wow that's fast oh it's it's incredible and it's incredibly inexpensive uh as a comparison between uh, a rocket like elon musk launches his every launch he has is 65 million our launches are 10 uh, we don't carry as much payload, but we carry it to an exact orbit. We also have the ability to shut our engine on and off. Uh, we can uh, throttle it, meaning we can go slow, we can go fast. Uh, so we can put 20 satellites in the nose cone. We can go up into space, shut off at the perfect orbit. So that's a very important thing if you, it, this poor analogy, but if you needed 18 cameras at 20 degrees around the earth, to get a total picture of the Earth every time it spun, uh, you'd got you've got to get them at exactly 20 degrees. If you mm -hmm. do, if you have a rocket like SpaceX or someone else's, they can't start and stop. They can't change trajectory. So they throw out all the all the satellites, and they're all not exactly in the same orbit. But theoretically, in my poor example, some would be at 15 degrees, some would be at 30, some would be at 40, and 45 and whatever. So you have overlap. It's a tremendous waste. We can go up, have 20 satellites on board, drop one, refire, go to another location, drop it in the exact orbit, fire up again, go into the next orbit, drop another one. We can do that 18 times around the earth. And, That's a game changer. And, and it's a game changer, uh, aside from the cost. And since it's plastic, and uh, we use two oxidizers. One is liquid oxygen for orbital space. One is nitrous oxide for suborbital. And uh, the, uh, the, the nitrous is totally benign. The, you can put a bullet through our rocket and it wouldn't explode. Wow. The, you put a bullet through one of NASA's rockets or Musk's biofuel rockets, it's, mm -hmm. it's toast. And mm -hmm. that's why historically kind of one out of 20 competitive rockets or traditional bifuel rockets explode. You've, you've surely heard about a lot of those going up and not making it. Um, and if you look at them, they're a beautiful, complex machine. They have turbines spinning at 40,000 RPM, which is one of the biggest problems. They can't hold together at that speed. There's valves all over the place. There's just hundreds of moving parts. Mm -hmm. Our our engine has two valves that move, and that's it. No moving parts. We've patented a injection system that injects the nitrous or the oxygen and completely atomizes it, so that we can uh, burn completely. Uh, we've patented a valve. We've patented the printing process. Uh, we will be launching two more rockets of our com our own complete design in uh, September in Mojave, I believe it is, the desert of California. 
And uh, after that, we go on to uh, build our own rockets uh, large enough to carry a 2,500-pound payload is our, is our uh, goal. And uh, we're dealing with an international country to uh, launch out of there. We actually have an international place in Brazil. Uh, we have employees there already. We have our facility in Cocoa, Florida, uh, with about 40-ish, 50-ish, somewhere in there. And the brightest, youngest scientists you've ever met. They're exciting to be around because they're so enthusiastic. Uh, and we, um, we believe we're going to be launching at least one, if not two, rockets a week in 2025. Wow, that's great. That's great. And, and is, is this type of fuel able to also be used on commercial uh, jetliners, or is that strictly rocket fuel to propel into space and to work in space? And it has a wide variety of applications because of its ability to be throttled and, uh, and shut off and turned back on just like any other engine. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... Commercial airlines, it, yeah, it's possible. Uh, I mean, you, you'd have to you have to think about it as the fuel cell is the plastic, and we consume it in the burning. So it's not you'd have to replace the fuel cell every time. So it'd be kind of like replacing the engine on the jet. Only a, a turbine jet is a very complex piece of equipment, right. and sure. and gets into trouble every once in a while. Ours is a plastic tube. It looks like any other. Uh, in fact, I've got one of the engines sitting here. You want me to grab it and show it to you? Yeah, that would be great. Okay, <laughs> I'd love to hear that. So, yeah, travelers, while you're while while Ward is getting that piece, it, it's just amazing how when you're open to uh, new opportunities and when your network of people knows about it, knows that you are open to receiving amazing things can happen as we're witnessing right now. This is it. This wow. is obviously, uh, well, let me get it in front of the crowd. So it's mm -hmm. very short. Uh, this one's seven inches. So here's an application for this. Um, if you, if Musk wants to send up 85 satellites, I think he's doing on either. Yeah, I think he, no, he hasn't done his launch yet, but he's going to do it any day now with 85 satellites on board. Since this is plastic, it's inert. You can hook this. You could hook this engine to every one of those satellites. When it gets up into space, you could fire it. He dumps all eighty-five of them out in one place. Well, once you're in space, it doesn't take. It takes a fair amount of energy, but not nothing like it takes to get up there. Right. And so you could take this engine, put it on every one of those satellites, fire it up with a guidance system on it. It'd be a full rocket, but a very simple one. And mm -hmm. move the satellite to exactly where you want it to be and shut it off. And as the satellite orbit might deteriorate, you could refire this and put it back into the exact orbit. That may or may not be a realistic application because satellite technology is improving so fast, just like cell phone technology mm -hmm. has, that a satellite... It gets obsolete pretty fast. But anyway, there, so another job for this little engine is to go up there and uh, 
maybe as it deteriorates and it gets old and it's it's out of fashion, uh, turn this on, push the satellite back down in out of orbit and put it into the atmosphere and let it burn up. So you get rid of the space junk that everybody's mm -hmm. talking about. Right. Here's another device that we've patented. Um, I wish you could see this a little better, but this is a 3D printed injection nozzle. This is what goes on the top of the engine and injects the nitrous or the oxygen. This is full of all kinds of little uh, tubes. And the only way you could make this is because it is 3D printed, you can print the voids in there. So the gas comes in here, swirls around, goes into all these little tubes and comes out like a vortex, like a tornado. And that, and it's going so fast by the time it comes out of those little, those very small holes that it's atomized when it actually can expand. So it's under a lot of pressure going through there. It comes out and it's no longer under any pressure. And so it, it, it just expands into atoms, individual atoms that can burn. Wow. Now, again, wow. scientists are probably going to tell me that, Ward, you did a really lousy job of explaining that. But, <laughs> uh, but that's the essence of it. And, and it's as exciting a thing as I've ever been involved with. And wow. there's, we have five, um, five of our top executives are all graduates of uh, the military academies. So a couple of Air Force Academy, one Naval Academy. Our Naval Academy graduate was the Top Gun graduate of Top Gun School in the year that he graduated from the Navy. Uh, or in the Navy. Uh, all of them have been around rockets and, and, and spacecraft of some sort their whole careers. Uh, they, they all retired as colonels, which is about as high as you can get before you get to be a general. And uh, so they're really talented and, uh, and I'm, I feel really fortunate to, to be with them. In fact, uh, I, I may have the opportunity to do something I've never done before which is we may be uh, we may be able to take this company public and that'll wow. be a completely new financial experience for me. Exciting. Amazing. Yeah, amazing, huh? Amazing yeah. how opportunities just appear and you know you got to be able to walk through the door when when the door is open. Yeah, yeah. grab that rocket and ride it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So you know what, before we go, how, how do you go about raising capital? You know, because a lot of people that are listening in all today are also involved in real estate and entrepreneurs and, you know, understanding that there's risk and there's failure and there's success and all that. You know, people want to start their businesses, want to buy real estate. How, what would you say to people when they're going out there and starting to raise capital for real estate, for ventures and whatnot? What are some things that they should keep in mind when they're doing that? Having partners is not. So when I first started, everybody said, don't have partners, don't have partners. Well, I mean, that's, that's a great thing to say, but you need something to help you get started. Mm -hmm. that's, you know, there are some businesses you could, you could start a house construction business by yourself and add an employee and then another employee. But um, if structured properly, partnerships are not a bad thing. And structured properly means to me that I've never needed to have 100% control or 51% even control of a business. First of all, I've surrounded myself with really talented people as, as rocket crafters with some, uh, some incredibly smart human beings dedicated. Um, 
they're not making selfish decisions. And right. if one of them did try to do it, there's six others of us on the board that are going to stop that. And nobody would be on the board very long. I actually get approached regularly by people that want me to invest. I'm fine with that. I, I invest in a fair number of other people's businesses. But um, to contradict that little statement right there, I would tell anybody that if they can invest in themselves and put all their money into their company, don't ever put your money with me. I mean, you'll make great money, but nobody will make more money, in my opinion, off of any investment they make other than investing in themselves. That's the very best one you can make. So going on, um, uh, <laughs> lost my train of thought. What were we, what were we talking about uh, principles of, of going out and raising capital. And you're talking about partners. Uh, to so go out to raise capital, you know, it's good to have partners to help you with that. Right. So being being faithful to your partners, not demanding control. People come to me and want me to invest, but they want to keep control. I said, that's fine. That's your choice. But I'm not good. You're not getting my money. That's 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 my business choice. Mm -hmm. If I want partners, I want to I want to be fair to them and I want them to be fair to me. I can have forty nine percent. Uh, if that's what I want, I don't have that very often. Most of our hospitals, I have 10 or 15% ownership. Um, but that's a lot. Um, uh, and, and it spreads my risk by letting me be in more and more investments, but back to the original question. Um, if you're fair with people, if, so, so you put together a really decent business plan. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know that it has to be fabulous. It's just got to be decent. Rocket Crafters came to me with a private placement memorandum, memorandum that had, I believe it was 17 flaws in it that I wouldn't have invested if they'd have kept it. And I rewrote it for them, recognizing that they were uh, military people mm -hmm. and that a lawyer wrote it. And, and lawyers are okay, but... I've been accused of practicing law too, but, but that's, <laughs> you've done enough deals, you understand it. And exactly. I, uh, I, so it's a really great example. I rewrote it for him and I said, if you, if you want me to invest, you got to change these 17 things in this way. And no one person can have absolute control. They changed all 17 of them to satisfy my needs. Now, maybe they could have went somewhere else and got some money. Maybe, Maybe I was their only choice. I don't know. But all I know is that I wasn't dealing with a bunch of greedy guys. I was dealing with some guys that wanted to see the business succeed. Right. So set up your set up your project in a methodology that allows everyone to win and that everyone is on a very important word here, parallel paths. If I if if you lose, I lose. If you win, I win. That's parallel path to me. If if I win and you lose, that's a really bad deal. I mean, and, mm -hmm. and I don't even feel good about that deal. I don't want my invest. I know I'm going to do six or eight or 10 new investments a year in some various business at this stage of my life. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, at one point, it was one every two or three years uh, or bankruptcy was more. But uh, I know I'm going to do more deals. I don't intend to do one deal. I, and that maybe it was part of the philosophy I've left out. 
is that uh, I believe in diversity and, and I, I wouldn't want all of my eggs in healthcare. I don't mm-hmm. want all of my eggs in rockets. I don't want them all in real estate. I want to know that I have diversified enough that uh, healthcare could, Medicare could fail tomorrow and all of my hospitals fail and, you know, or at least quit making money. And uh, I'm still going to have my real estate and I'm still going to have my rocket crafters and I'm still going to have my assisted living centers and, and uh, Freddie's franchise, Freddie's. So I'm a big, I'm a partner in a big franchise of probably almost a hundred people that, do you know what a Freddie's franchise is? No, no, never heard of Freddie's franchise. Oh my gosh. They're the best hamburgers in the world. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You got to try one, but we are, the biggest franchisee of Freddy's. Uh, so, I mean, how much more diversity can you get? Uh, sure. So set it up properly, be fair, make everybody win. Um, don't, one of the dumbest things I get is when people come to me and they say, well, we put a million dollars into this. We want to raise $3 million. And the first million of that 3 million is going to go pay us all of our investment back. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing that one. <laughs> it's no good. Okay. Uh, that's what got you to this point, and you need my money. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I suppose there's a whole lot of other things to talk about, but yeah, in great infinite detail. But we don't have time, probably. I appreciate it, Ward. It's been fantastic. It's an incredible, you know, listening to your journey and to see how you've moved through different stages of life and and with your children and you know, rocket crafters, and it's phenomenal. Very inspirational to a lot of people that are just getting involved, um, people that want to make a shift in their life. So thank you so much for being on the show. Travelers, you can find Ward on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. He's out there, right? Check him out on HGTV. Thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate your time. It was it was wonderful having you, and and I really enjoyed it, and hopefully you'll be back uh, to share with uh, with us on some new ventures that uh, that you're working on. And travelers, remember that next week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, we have uh, the author of The Standing Meditation, Nate Rifkin. And remember, I've got my Real Estate Investment Secrets ebook for only a dollar. That's right, just one dollar. Uh, I will see you somewhere next week on Spaceship Earth. Ward, it has been a pleasure. Well, thank you. And I do appreciate that you mentioned to follow us at, at Ward Schrader or at Tamar Day. And let's get back together after September and, and we launch our uh, two rockets then. And I'll have a whole lot to talk about rocket crafters. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Good luck on the, uh, on the rocket launches. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye, guys. <laughs>